HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Great Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is John Bonet. We'll talk to John about his new book, The New French Wine, and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. John Bonet is no stranger to The Great Nation. This is his third appearance on the podcast, here to discuss his new and third book, The New French Wine. John is an award-winning author and journalist. His background includes MSNBC, Decanter, a decade as wine editor-in-chief critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, author of The New California Wine and The New Wine Rules. John is currently managing editor at Resi, covering dining, restaurants, and wine pretty much everywhere wine and food is served. There you go. (laughs) Welcome back to the Grave Nation, John. Hey, Sam, it's great to be back. We're talking to John in person, um, which I like because it's more fun than a remote. We're in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are not at the Heritage Studios. We are down the block at the Heritage offices. Um, John, I know you've come up for a little there, so I'm excited to talk to you about the book. When I saw some posts, you know, that you felt time-wise it was safe to release... I think I sent you a note the next day and said, you know, we have to talk about this. So I was excited to see that. Um, right. Before we get into the book, you came from a food and wine loving family. I did. Um, which you can get into that for a second. You eventually uh, took work in journalism. But here's what I'm curious I about. I took work. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, became, I, became, I became of age and I took yeah. work in journalism. So you took so. work. That's like an old uh, <laughs> colonial expression. Yeah. Um, but here's the part I'm interested in. 
you didn't get into wine writing right away. If, if, if I tagged it right, it was around the new millennium, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Tell me a little about why at that time and just, you know, give me the trajectory which takes us to today or the, you sure. know, the first book. So before I got into wine writing, I actually had to get into wine or back into wine because I grew Which up with Which is why it, I said, as, said yeah. as a kid, you were so, exposed. But yeah, so, you know, did, did all, the, all, the, all the culinary things when I was a child uh, and a teenager, then forgot all about it. And yeah, somewhere, I mean, late 90s, turn of, turn of the millennium, I was starting to get back into wine. Uh, I moved out to Seattle and I was getting really into the wine industry there. And it, that, was, that was the beginning of the boom for- Fill for in the blank. Wine. Why did you go or why were you in Seattle? Oh, as you mentioned, MSNBC. Okay, so, so that was the MSNBC I, uh, job. I, I visited the newsroom out in uh, Redmond and decided that- I very much wanted to live in Seattle and asked the right people until I managed to transfer. Uh, so I was living in Seattle and getting into wine there. And uh, I'd done hard news for probably 15 years or so and was looking for other things. I, at that point, it sort of shifted to be a business reporter and uh, covered the airline industry, covered uh, travel, a bunch of different things. and started occasionally sort of taking on a food or wine story. And I really liked the wine stories and I was already into it. And suddenly I realized like, wait a second. So, you know, the day job will like pay me to write about this stuff. And so, yeah. I need so, this full time. Yes. But not yeah. even full time. Like I, you know. Give me yeah, a yeah, couple like, of stories. Suckered my editor into giving me a wine column basically. And, you know, on top of my other stuff and uh, ended up building sort of a beat around food and wine, but not just kind of the, I taste cherries and blackberries, but the science and the business of it. Uh, so that, that's where it started. Uh, and then the full trajectory. So I was doing that at MSNBC for about three years. And then the San Francisco Chronicle reached out and they were- I mean, you had built up a name and a reputation. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they... the nice thing about, you know, sort of, you know, stumbling into a wine column at a national and international publication that has very big names behind it is that has, that has very big names behind it. Right. You know? yeah. uh, so immediately you have a, you have a national readership and beyond. And, uh, and <clears throat> that was extraordinarily fortunate uh, on me, on my end. And so, yeah, so the Chronicle sort of had noticed I'd won some awards for writing and, uh, and they were looking to, to hire a new wine editor. And so, uh, that all kind of clicked and, you know. Was the person you replaced, was it like the Frank Priel type guy or somebody that hadn't no, been there? I mean, the person who was there before me was a woman named Linda Murphy. And she had been a longtime writer in California. She had done wine PR. She actually, as many wine writers did, she started as a sports writer, I think, <coughs> I think for the, the Union Tribune in San Diego. And, you know, it's, I mean, she'd, she'd been in the Chronicle a, a couple, three years, but uh, quite honestly, as I would come to learn, it, it was a relatively grueling job. I mean, you can never complain about, uh, being at a newspaper and having a job at a newspaper, certainly in the early to mid 2000s, like a miracle as it was, uh, given the, the contraction of the industry. But, uh, but you know, it was it was a lot of work, and especially at the Chronicle, that job wasn't just to be the wine person. It was uh, 
the Chronicle is the only US newspaper to ever have a full standalone wine section. And so the job was to not only be the chief critic and you know write the big stories, tell the big stories, but also to run the section. Get a section and out. So you yeah. had a yeah, so you had a you had a production schedule, you had freelancers, you had um, I think when I got there I had two staff and so it was it was a you know capital J job. Yeah, but you got right into it pretty heavily, you know, in a good spot. A um, couple things on that, and then I want to get into the book. Because of proximity, were you limited to write mostly about the Northwest in California, or you had free reign to go anywhere? Um, well, at MSNBC, I could write about whatever. Right. Uh, at, at the Chronicle, I'm, now I'm talking Chronicle. Yeah, at, at the Chronicle, the San Francisco was, yeah, Chronicle. There, there was clearly a. There was a focus on California, no surprise, uh, and Northern California to some extent. But the Chronicle had always covered wine internationally. Uh, I mean, we honestly were, were when I got there, we're, we're uh, syndicating Jancis's column. Oh, really? So, uh, well, so that was a good idea. Yeah. So, so it was, um, you know, I I took all the latitude and probably then some in terms of not just covering California. Uh, I came in with a fair amount of skepticism about where California wine was in the early 2000s. And as you know, that was that was the substance of my first book, which was New California so Wine. So I wanted to ask you yeah. about that. So that skepticism and getting embedded into the market and, you know, writing about it, you realized this is really not the type of wine the way it's made, the people, the vibe. I mean, you you didn't like where it was and where it was going, and you kind of recognized who was there and where it could go. I mean, the end of the the end the the end of the nineties, but the beginning of the two thousands was the end of a life cycle of a certain type of wine and a certain philosophy about wine that I'll say had started, let's say, late 70s, Is early 80s. Is this parkerization? It's parkerization, but it's, but it's beyond that. It, okay. it, it was a sense of immediacy. It was simplifying wine so that it had a much bigger, within, a, within the United States, a much bigger consumer base. This is where KJ grew up. This is where the fighting varietals came up in the 80s. And parkerization was much more just a matter of style and being like, right. well, if people like it okay at 13, they're going to love it at 15% alcohol. And certainly when the rise of cult wines began in the early 90s, it was this, this arms race, if you will. I mean, in the new California wine, I called it the big flavor. But, uh, but so, so by, the, you know, by the early mid-2000s, it was really at the end of that life cycle. I don't think anyone quite knew... What was going to come next? I think it was kind of a natural end. Like, it, it, like were people tiring of it? It wasn't as important. I think it was that it had gotten saturated. All the wines that people were really into in the early '90s, the you know, the Screaming Eagles, the Harlands, had become stupendously expensive and ridiculous yeah. to get. And and so it was like this incrementalism of how many more cult wines can you add to the can you add to the heap, and. Frankly, the people who were buying them, like, you can't drink those wines that fast or, or that often. And so it was just this sense that, uh, you know, a lot of California had fallen into sort of a, a bit of autopilot in terms of very commercial industrial winemaking. The stuff at the top end had really sort of jumped the shark. And so what, what I saw eventually sort of, you know, late 
late in the 2000s toward the beginning of the global financial crisis was that there were these seeds of change and people who had either never given into this, this more is more philosophy or they had, you know, they had kind of gone through an arc and realized that that really wasn't the best expression of California. And this is people like Steve Ted, Mathias, Ted Lemon, Ted Lemon, those who had know, been walking exactly. the walk and still were walking it. Yeah, were, yeah. were folks like uh, the guys at Arnott Roberts who just like they were coming right. up in the world out of the the you know late decadent cult wine era, late decadent Parkerization, if you want it, uh, and. We're just looking for a different path. So that that became, for me, that became this this catalyst for telling a very different story about California, which uh, which obviously in the end was very fruitful for me, and I think was was a remarkable uh, uh, boon of timing, but uh, was for sure at the time uh, not well received by the mainline industry in California. Yeah. So, which which for sure made that like an Raj job. and Jasmine's Pinot thing. You know, it wasn't well received. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, people yeah, don't want to hear. It's, it's funny now to think about. I mean, I, in pursuit of balance feels very quaint in the sense yeah, that right? you know, the, the 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 question has been definitively answered. But at the time, yeah, it was there was a lot of anger at this notion that that people wanted a sense of restraint, a sense of nuance, and and the thing is, not just me, but like you know. Could have been Raj, could have been all sorts of folks, you know, the Ted Lemons of the world. You know, the, the accusation was that we were a bunch of Francophiles who just wanted to impose our Euro standards on the, the abundant sunshine of California. And again, like the, the, the irony being that uh, we've somehow come out of this process alive and there is now enormous interest in that style. It has become, I think, among sort of an elite level of, of, uh, a buyer and of of drinker like that is now the default. Um, yeah. And so meantime, I, I finally gave every one of my critics in California who thought that I was just a Frenchman in disguise, uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I finally gave them the gratification of of quote unquote going going back to Europe. Yeah, really. I mean that that's how it played out. Um, all right, so you leave the Chronicle, you write your first book, you come to New York, we'll get into that, you know, kind of as we weave, but, you know, let's use the book as a backdrop, um, so I want to jump right into it, and as I mentioned off air, answer a few vital and obligatory questions, let's get them out of the way. Um, how did the idea of the book come about? Now, obviously, a similar-ish the new California came about, so the notion wasn't. You I know, just changed one but, word. No, yeah. no, no, <laughs> I'm not even implying that, but but at some point, yeah. you know. No, so, so the new California was out, and it was 2014. So uh, new California came out in late 2013. It was 2014, and I was starting to poke around for the next thing, and had some ideas about the old world and this. This book notion of quote unquote the the the, the new old world, uh, which given the time it took just to do France, thank goodness I didn't do that. <laughs> 40, 40 years later, I'd come back, but uh, but so it was the sense that you know there is there is change happening elsewhere, and it would be great to capture it. And I was having 
drinks um, at a natural wine bar in Oakland with my editor of the first book, Emily Emily Timberlake, and we were same publisher then as now. Same publisher, same, okay. same everything. Okay, um, but and we were chatting garrulously as one does after maybe a little too much gamay. Uh, sometimes happens. The French know this. Uh, and she Low was like, alcohol, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. uh, and she was like, so what about France? And, you know, standing, you know, belly full of Beaujolais, looking at all these kind of funky, interesting French wines around me. I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And we thought, yeah, you know, we can, it's, it's going to be lots of interesting fringy stuff and um, kind of natural and... Uh, you know, we'll wrap it up in two years and that'll be that. And so forget the two-year part for a yeah. second. Was what you just described pretty much what happened? Was your original assessment of what it could and should be what it wound up to be? No. No? Not okay. at all. Okay. Uh, simply in that, I mean, yes, all of those things were, were sort were of elements. True, and but the, the thing that I, I don't think that I had quite processed was that the change that was taking place in France and in French wine was not in any way on the French. It was everywhere. And some of it, yes, was like, you know, sulfur and natural and, you know, going up to the Auvergne and finding weird volcanic wines and all kinds of stuff. But I mean, all of those things were true in some sense, uh, but, and, and there's a book in, there's a book, there's a chapter in the book called uh, In Search of a New Gamay Wonderland, which was actually me kind of coming to terms with this dream I had about the Auvergne, which is part of the Massif Central, the, the big mountain range in central France, and thinking that it was going to be this, this, this wonderful place of, of transformation and change. And it was the most recalcitrant place ever. Oh, really? And, you know, the folks who are there who are trying to make wine are, are doing remarkable work, but it was just this, this moment of realizing that all of, you know, you sit in California and you dream your dreams of, you know, of French hipsters and evolution. And you realize at some point that that's not, not, not true. It's not completely untrue, but it really is a very narrow prism. And what in fact was happening was that there was change taking place in every single region of France, in every single significant appellation. And... In so a way, they, the, they, the scale it was yeah. so extensive. I mean, and, and when you say the scale of France, it's it's hard at times for people to to encompass in the sense that like California has now maybe eight thousand wineries or so. France conservatively has somewhere between forty thousand and eighty thousand. I, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. So just like in a, you know, in a, in a in a like in a very conservative way, you're talking about ten x. Uh, which which really isn't even true there because it's just you know the 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 history and the magnitude of of everything in France the importance of these regions is so much more pronounced. Which say this is this is no skin off of Napa Valley, uh, which has its own extraordinary history, but it's not Bordeaux. And, no. and when you actually dive into Bordeaux, and it's it's ironic because Bordeaux's history turns out to not actually be that ancient as things go, but you could pick any any region and you start digging in and you realize that all of the changes that are happening in the 21st century are built on hundreds, if not thousands of years of predicate. But so that, that's amazing. Um, all right, let's stay with the vital stuff. So what, 
was French wine on your radar or your your editor, Emily, kind of sparked the interest? I mean, you weren't walking around thinking, you know, maybe down the road. I mean, French, well, for sure it was on my radar in the sense that I was... Not as a book. No, I mean, I mean I was you writing, were I was, aware, yeah. I was, I was writing yeah. about it a lot. I mean, lot, you were more was, of a global San Francisco Chronicle editor. Yeah, than, and, you and, know. And, I mean, writing about it a lot, thinking about it a lot, you can't in some way be in wine without France always right. being there, uh, hovering. But totally. I, don't, I don't think that I, it wasn't immediately in my mind like, well, I clearly need to just go dive deeply into France. In, in part because I don't think in general, like no one in wine can even think at that scale in the sense of like, I'm gonna get really into Champagne. I'm mean, getting really into Burgundy, and you see, there's like, you know, the the like deep wine enthusiasts um, and collectors, whoever, like they tend to choose their place, and that's their focus. Like, yeah. I'm going to be super into class growth Bordeaux. I'm going to be super right. into Northern Rhone or new grower Champagne people right. or whatever. So, so it's just you know to to suddenly be like, yeah, all of those things, and you know, but I'm going to really look for the cutting edge of what's there and the change of what's there. All right, so how long uh, yeah. did it take to write the book? Uh, so 2014, we signed the contract late 2014, and we shipped it in late 2022, so eight years. Finally. Um, that's obviously longer than the New California. Yes. Substantially longer. But New California, to be fair, I was sort of hanging around for a long time before I realized that it should be a book. Um, I don't know if this is a silly question, but if you had the choice of power today, which book would have been better to have written first? Did, did the new California help you in writing, you know, this more of a, it did. So the order is good. The, the, order, the order was actually the correct order. Okay. Uh, one, it, just it in seems terms that of, way in terms of scale, but two, like, I don't want to say that the, the story of California is simple because it is remarkably it could, complex, but it could be simpler, but it's just, it's definable. It was a very specific thing or set of things that was happening at a moment. And so I think it gave me, it gave me the way to start framing these stories and these notions. Yeah. Cause um, I, I think, the story, and that's what we're going to get into. I just want to get, like I said, these vital things out of the way. So you wrote upwards of 900 pages for this book. Does that mean you left a lot on the floor, or that was pretty much everything? Uh, yeah, so it, it was it was pushing 900 pages. Uh, we cut probably 75,000 words. Which is... I which is a book. Another so book. Oh, so substantial. Jesus I mean, the, 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 book land, you, the book landed somewhere a little shy of 600,000, 550, 570. So is, we, we cut more than 10%. Is that frustrating? It made sense? Is there something you could do with that? Or it's it was onward and forward, right? You know, A, I write long, maybe excessively long. Well, but, that's, but, but, listen, but, but, I love yeah, it. And yeah, I told yeah, you before, yeah. I mean, that's your style and you know, yeah. you really get into it. So I could see how it could go on and how it could be tough. You know, you have to shorten it and how you have to cut stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming crazy travel, right? I mean, just 
in the midst of writing this book, which wasn't the first year or the last year, but when you were really, I mean, what are you talking about? Going to France three, four times a year, living there? Six I mean, just times a year, usually. Six times a uh, year? Sort of living there. I mean, we, we bought an apartment, but I wasn't really living there so much as like, I would go for a couple of days and then head out to wherever I needed to go. A lot of Airbnbs. Um, What's, pick a region for me. Um, and tell me how long you spent there and if you went back a few times. Yeah, it would depend on the region. Like Alsace? Or... Alsace I, I spent about two weeks in, and I probably unfortunately did not go back. It was a place that I struggled with when I was there, um, just in terms of what was or was not happening and the progress that I didn't really see there. I think there's more of it now that I, I'm sure that I would have gotten more more flesh on the bone if I had gone back. It just at some point became a question of, you know, I can only do so much yeah, travel no, and, makes, and so much travel. It means makes sense. That's why I said Alsace because it's not you know some, you know somewhere somewhere north of somewhere north of thirty trips uh, over there, which were usually around three weeks apiece. Uh, and so, you know, like, is it enjoyable and thrilling, or does it get? Do you get weary and it's like work and two and a half weeks into it, like, get me the hell out of here, or? It's, I don't even know if it's get me the hell out of here so much as just, you're doing usually four appointments, four, four appointments a day or so, six days a week. That wears thin. It's just, I don't want to say it's monotonous, because look, every time you visit a new vineyard, there's something new. There's a reason that I've found my way to their doorstep. Right. At the same time, it is, there is a pattern to it, and at some point, you're just like, I have spent so much time in the past few weeks just absorbing information, tasting wine, kind of in this routine that, uh, you know, I, my, my body, my brain, everything <laughs> needs a break. Yeah. Um, all right, let's finish up the vital obligatory question. So let's talk about the physical book. Before we talk about what's inside, um, I think it needs um, some discussion because... Um, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's an interesting design. Um, it's a slipcase. It's a little different. So it's two volumes, two doorstops in a slipcase. Um, two doorstops to the price of one. Right. I, I was going to describe it. I'm like, why am I doing it? Just describe the physical part, the colors, you know, because it's it's very eye-catchy in that sense. I mean, this is not, you know. Yeah. I mean, I love Peter Liam and I love his champagne book, but this doesn't look like that. <laughs> well, and, and look, it's, you know, Peter and I had, you know, same publisher, same agent. Uh, and and in, I think the, the starting idea for New French Wine was going to be somewhat much closer to Peter, very somber, very official. And I challenged Ten Speed and I challenged our, our book designer, uh, Lizzie Allen and was like, I, I get why you're going there, but you know, we, you've done that book already. Uh, and they did it again with a book on bourbon uh, that is also a remarkable book. And I was like, this is meant to send a different message and it needs to, it needs to be an object. Like I want to see it on the shelf at restaurants and recognize it. I want to, I want people to know immediately when they see it what book it is, which there's surely some 
wacky ego stuff in that, but it is what it is. Uh, it's also, as I've said before, like it's living in the Instagram era. So the slipcover uh, and the uh, the uh, the monotone on the front and back covers of each of the volumes is uh, is very particular shade of blue. Don't ask me what it is. I'm sure. Lizzie you don't knows, have Lizzie, the, Lizzie you knows, don't have the Pantone yeah, number. Lizzie for knows me. the Pantone of it. Um, my, my, I had a lot of prompts about the colors, uh, and you know, you haven't mentioned one word yet. Well, there's pink. We'll get there. Okay. Um, but so the blue, like you know, there's <clears throat> Eve Klein blue. There's uh, there's Sevra blue or blue celeste, which is celestial blue, which is a very specific color that was used in ceramics in the 18th century. So I had had my mood board. I sent all these things. But in the end, what I said to her was, "Look, my my prompt to you is this: I want I want electric blue and hot pink." So the spines of the uh, of the volumes and other accents are for sure hot pink, and they jump. Don't ask me Pantone on that one either, but uh, but it was very much this. I mean, for sure, we are not the first people to use that particular palette, but it was just the sense of uh, this needs to be absolutely distinct. It needs to not, on its immediate face, look like a wine book. The slipcase, uh, the title of the book is actually debossed. So if an emboss comes up, right. deboss goes down. Right. And so it's not printed so much as it is it's on imprinted. The, it's on the volume. Yeah. You know, uh, spine yeah. or whatever you call it. Yeah. So it's it was meant to <clears throat> it was meant to be a very sharp turn away from where wine books are aesthetically. I, I think it is, and I think to your point, you know, if it sits on a table or on a bookshelf. It'll attract people. Um, let's talk about, so there's two volumes in the slipcover. There's, um, describe each volume. The second volume, I'll help you. The second volume is producers, which is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, there's really three elements, you know, kind of a lead-in of the region, uh, benchmark winemakers and all the other people that you feel are making the right contributions. Is that a fair? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to the producer? No, part? it's, I mean, we we knew that a portion of what people use wine books for is as a reference. They want to look up the the people who are making the wines they're drinking and the wines. And so... When you were writing this, yeah. was that in the back of your mind? It was. That this will sit we, as a we, reference book? When we started to talk about structure, it was very clear. I mean, originally, it was just going to be the back of the chapter. And then it was like, well, why are we doing that versus... People use this in a random access fashion. They, they, they want to look up Chateau Rias. They want to look up uh, Domaine des Frères and Chinon. And like they, they don't, they don't want to like be flipping through this enormous. Right, and they want to see tone. who you've identified yeah. as the top of the heap, the benchmark guy, and all that. You know which you do. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but in Volume One and Volume Two, and we still have to describe Volume One. You know, you talk about regions like Champagne, Alsace, Burgundy, and all that. What's the difference between the lead-in in the narrative chapter and the lead-in in the uh, producer chapter? The producer chapter was just meant to very quickly recap the geography that is in a section of the narrative called The Place. Right. Uh, just so that you have a sense of, here's the basic geography and the layout, 
here's it, for the for the regions where we did subregions, we broke it out. Here's what those subregions represent. And many of them people will know, some of them they will not. For instance, in Burgundy, everyone knows the Cote de Bone and the Cote de Nuit. Most people do not know the Cote Dijonais. Right. which is the historic vineyard land around Dijon, uh, or the Côte de, uh, de, uh, the Côte de Couchois, uh, which is sort of old, old land uh, west of the Chalonaise. Right. So it was just sort of saying, like, maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Here's our Cliff Notes kind of geography lesson. All right, so I think a good segue to talk about the narrative volume is to talk about the narrative. But first... We just have to take a quick break so we can uh, let our underwriters, sponsors, and subscribers um, jump in here. So you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking to John Bonet. We're talking to John about his new book. When we come back, we will uh, get into really the narrative of this book. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, John, John Bonet. He just published uh, his new book, The New French Wine. Uh, you could use a lot of adjectives about this book like seminal bonkers uh, bonkers huge you know but i mean mine are all good all right so let's talk about really what this book is about we talked about that it could be a resource and there's a ton of information um but i'm curious you said you were a skeptic of california wine in the 2000s did you have a similar skepticism or you knew more about California wine than French wine? I mean, what, what was your, so you mean when I started writing the, the French book, the French book? Yeah. I, I don't think I had skepticism in the sense that, you know, I have had always loved French wine, still love French wine. I probably had some skepticism about a little bit of the fringe and where quote unquote natural wine was headed, which in the mid 2010s was an odd place. Different subject. Yeah. Today. You, you could argue it's still there, but, but it was certainly then like, I think there was, uh, there was a bit of a, uh, a, 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 a from the natural wine world about how much they wanted to rebel and be different. And uh, when we talk about natural wine, the, 
writing the natural wine chapter became sort of trying to catch that at the right moment. But I don't think there was skepticism. I think it was more that I, I just, I, I, I had a, a vague sense of what was happening, but that's what happens when you're 6,000 miles away. You, you can't really know the magnitude of what's taking place until you get on the ground. And, and ironically, that was a lesson that I probably should have intuited from New California right. that I didn't quite put two and two together on in that the reason that I was able to tell the story I did about California was because I was very much there and living it. And I, I won't say that I was there and living it in France, but I certainly had to get close enough to be able to find the substance of the stories. Well, eight years worth. Um, all right, so he, here's the setup question, and this is going to run everywhere to all the good places. Um, so it's fair to say what's been happening in France the last 20, 25 years, you know, caught your attention and correct me if I'm wrong, became the thesis of the book. Here's what's happening and here's what I've kind of learned and figured out. You may not know and here, here's why. Um, can you, is this a fair question? Can you explain that thesis? Sure. And, you know, the transformation, I, is the thesis the transformation of French wine? It is, but it has a more specific context. So that's what I want to yeah. hear. And and I'll be honest, it took me a long time. It took me years to really finally get my head around it. And in in the in the first chapter of the book, I describe the moment when I like pull over to the side of the road because I've like finally kind of figured it out. Wait, did you know, but you couldn't get your head around it or you didn't know didn't, when it I, dawned I, I sort of, on you? Like, Which I, one? I, I had like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes and I, you know, I would take time to sort of sit and think my big thoughts and take, you know, write lots of stuff down. And I couldn't quite, now of course it's obvious, but I couldn't quite like get my head around it probably again, just because the magnitude. And so, yes, it was transformation, but really, different transformations in every single region. Uh, and it was not just... So it wasn't a universal. Well, yeah, it wasn't universal. There was some universal universality, what if there's a word, but each region had its own... It it did, um, and we'll, we'll get to the universality. So each region had its own transformation. Uh, they were not all the same. They were, for the most part, based on historic regions and not kind of, you know, fringe areas that were net new. So the change in Champagne, you know, for whatever anyone wants to talk about the Ove, which is important, but it's not that it was happening down south in, you know, what I call the rebel south. It was it was taking place in the heart of historic Champagne. It was taking place in the heart of historic Burgundy. But what really was the case was this wasn't simply an end to Parkerization and the internationalization of wine in the 90s and this kind of overwrought winemaking. It wasn't even the uh, the the success of getting past the sort of the 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 overcropping of the seventies and eighties, the really bad chemical farming of the post-war years, uh, and a lot of sort of narrowing of practices and traditions, which was the downside of the AOC system. Which again, you know, every, everyone in France thinks that everything has been eternal, but the AOCs really only date to nineteen thirty-six. 
and they were the AOC is the an organization Appalachian d'origine controlée. So these are the Appalachians, which is a regulatory. It is an official regulatory it? body. It's written into French for law for that region or that for any region. Any so right. There's four hundred odd AOCs. Yeah. Uh, for for wine, there's 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 AOCs for cheese, for lentils, for all sorts of things. But it they're very strictly governed uh, agricultural and production. Uh, rules that that these follow, and they were created not out of some great cultural thesis. They were created to stop fraud. Uh, that that really began in the late uh, the late nineteenth century and went wildly through the early twentieth century and almost killed the French wine industry. And so, you know, so thinking about the history again, so AOCs back to the back to the thirties, and if you go a step. Beyond that, uh, earlier than that, you have phylloxera, which was the vine louse that really, again, almost destroyed the French industry in the late 19th century. And so there was this approximately 150-year arc of the French wine industry just going through enormous pain and evolution and growth and change and trying to find its identity. And what I finally realized was that the 21st century, like two decades into the 21st century, is really the first moment since the mid-19th century when French wine, uh, as, as, a, as a total, is very, very self-assured and clear about its identity and its strength. And, and it's one reason why in the book, the, 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 one of the threads that, that goes through the whole book is this image of what the French vineyard was in the mid 19th century, kind of the, 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 the beginning of Republicanism, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, end of Napoleon the third and, um, and, and really the, the great study and classification of the French vineyards, which some of which went, you know, in the end horribly awry, like the classification of 1855 in Bordeaux, but on balance, it was this sense that, that here was truly, and, and I don't use the words lightly, here was the world's greatest wine culture in a moment of, of absolute blossoming and then getting hammered for 150 years and trying to find its way back. And so my ultimate takeaway was all the things we're seeing now, the, the revolutions, plural, that I, I tend to use in describing what's happening are the result of this arc coming to completion of this, this remarkable wine culture that had a lot of things really wonderfully figured out in, you know, the better part of two centuries ago, and then just had all of this institutional knowledge and all of this culture wiped away and had to rebuild. And the reason for me now that we've finally gotten to this, this state of grace is that that great mission, I don't want to say is completed, but it has come full circle. So when are we talking about? I mean, you know, you mentioned phylloxera, industrialization, the AOCs. I mean, are we talking things started changing after the Second World War or later into the 70s, maybe? When you say change, you mean toward what we have today? To, to, towards, towards what you're describing, yeah. you know, um, to that end of the... Uh, yes. Fair question back to me. To, Towards the end of that arc, yeah. So I, I would say the 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 final rounds of change that I think have brought us to where we are today 
I would take them maybe back to the late 90s. I don't know that they would go too much farther back. I'm thinking about the rise of grower champagne. I mean, you could argue the early 80s, if you want to look at Anselm Salos and where he started, you could, <clears throat> you could make a case that mid-90s in, say, Muscadet, where they started doing geological studies. Right. Or the early 80s with the gang in Beaujolais that wanted to make natural wine and farm differently. But it's it would be hard to put it too much farther back than that. And in some cases, let's take Burgundy, the 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 success and the um, the quality that we're enjoying today is really recent, which is to say Burgundy winemaking, even in the 90s, was a hot mess. To to in, in not not in an abstraction, but like if you look at the like cold soak and the guillacad method that got us these sort of big oaky California style right. Pinot Noirs and these, you know, very rich, creamy, buttery Chardonnays that were again sort of California style and you know pre-moxed and uh, you know just became sort of a, a disaster for a lot of vineyard in Burgundy. Like we're talking about a timeline that is maybe twenty years, tiny bit more. And so, I mean, that winemaking was continuing in Burgundy well into the two thousands. Can you tag that to generational change? Some or not entirely. Some, I mean, but generationally, there was a better. I mean, you look, you look at Burgundy and you see how many 25-year-olds are working with yeah. some of the best vineyards in the world. And this is the thing that's mind-blowing. It's like you want to talk about the, the quote-unquote, you know, the star of California Pinot Noir, the star of Argentinian Pinot Noir, whatever it is. And, like, you know, you have a 25-year-old wonderkin there, great. Like, that's awesome. Land is expensive, et cetera. But it's not Grand Cru Burgundy. And then you, like, you see these, like, these, these you know, these, these, these vignerons who are, like, 25, 28, 30 years old, and like, oh yeah, they're making Chambertin, and they're making right. they're making Batard Montrachet, right. and you're like, so so this is, I mean, I can't imagine the 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 pressure that that you know the new generation is under in the sense that these were always important vineyards, but then you add in the 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 price spikes from the collector market, and you know it's like a twenty five year old making a ten thousand twenty thousand dollar bottle of wine. It's crazy. I know. Like it's fundamentally crazy, and and the 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 way in which they're able to handle it with with a certain elan, with a certain grace, is remarkable. Because again, like this isn't the region that wants to be the origin, the original. This is the original, right? And and that's, that's what's crazy. really stunning in terms of the change in France, which is like this is when you look at the quote unquote new generation. This isn't like oh well, you know the new the next Mandavis are coming. Whatever it is, this is like. You know, this is the generation that's taking over making champagne right. and making Burgundy and making the classic. Well, that's what that that's what makes it so unique. I mean, that's what makes you know the the story of this book so unique. <clears throat> I'm just curious, things like phylloxera, you know, how they were forced into using herbicides during industrialization. Was that? I, I, I think unique is the wrong word, but was that something they were doing more of than anywhere else, Italy, the U.S.? I mean, phylloxera had a big impact on, you know, what happened to French wine. I, I would say yes, mostly because the French wine culture was so much more developed and commercialized than almost any other, which is to say the reason phylloxera spread so widely there was because the industry was so well-developed that 
people were circulating and they were planting things in different places and there was there was regular trade uh, and when uh, systemic pesticides and, and synthetics began being used after the world second world war it was because the french government had a very official system of agricultural advisors who took the the gospel of chemicals out into the into the countryside and, and, and hit it, it hard. Yeah, and, and and made it sort of the default practice. So in, in some ways the the depredations of the industry as they came were because the French industry was so well established and so central to French national identity. It's just crazy the history of the region, the length and you know just the changes so recent and just Kind of a lot of screw ups, but there, there are. I mean, there. Again, this is we 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 enjoy this this myth that to be fair, the French largely created and they right. they love more than anyone else that you know theirs is a timeless culture and things are as they have always been and you know this is tradition. When you when you so we were talking about the AOCs. The AOCs each AOC is governed by what's called the Cahier de Charge. The Cahier de Charge is literally an official legal document. It is written into French law and it is the rules of how that Appalachian's wines are made. What's interesting about the Cahier de Charge is that in, in, in every Cahier de Charge, it has a specific sort of narrative passage that describes the natural factors and the human factors that contribute to the Appalachian. And so it is the local lore, if you will, written into hagiography and literally into French law about why things have always been as they have been. Wow. And so... Well, did you get a chance to read a lot I of them? read more of them than any human being <laughs> ever really? should. Uh, but, but they are, I mean, they are an interesting there, there, sort of... There you come across some cool stuff, Well, they're, right? they're a really interesting sort of literature in the sense because they're like... When you think about French mythmaking, this is the distillation of French mythmaking writ into law. So mythmaking and a sense of the culture too. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. all of that, uh, and not, yeah. not so much the science and technique. The science some of that. That's the all. Science, the well, the but, guidelines but, are there. But it is this. What, There's a lot what, of color there. Yeah, I mean, it's what the French call patrimoine. So, which is sort of history. Sort all right. Of so I, I yeah. want to talk about okay. patrimoine. All right, because one of the earlier chapters in the book maybe at the beginning, is on patrimony. And I think it really sets up what the book is, which is what we're talking about. You may have to go backwards a little to talk about patrimony and then bring us forward. Sure. But, um, you know, what is it and, you know, the the evolution to new wine? I mean, talk to me about that, because people will look at that chapter and go, what is this? <laughs> I mean, patrimony. Uh, lost me already on page one. Yeah. But no, I don't want to even imply that because that's not what happened. But um, yeah, so it, it, it is the first chapter uh, and it's called Patrimoine or What's Old is New Again. And it's largely what we've but been talking a big, about. What's Old is New Again yeah. is really a big statement of what we're going to see in this book for, you know. For sure. And, it, and it's exactly what we've been talking about, which is this sense that all of the things that are quote unquote new now have strong and very clear basis in the past. And maybe not like orange wine, but even there you can go back and you can find, you know, the, um, you know, what was once called Arbois Rosé, which we now think of as like Jura Reds. Right. Was just, was a long-standing tradition. It was like this barely red, red wine that was kind That's of a, a point. like dark rosé that, you know, was being made 120 years ago. So, you know, you, you, 
you see that there are always parallels in the past with French wine and patrimoine, which again is this, this notion of cultural heritage slash history that is intrinsic to, <clears throat> to the French identity is really defines it. It's also what ends up allowing a lot of mistakes to happen because it's that, that difference between appreciating the role of culture of the past and being prisoner to it. And I would argue to some extent, the ways in which French wine were held back for much of the 20th century was in the industry being imprisoned by or, or, or drawn back by this notion of patrimoine, this, this notion of, of history being everything, even as there was always a push for progress. Now, sometimes not good as within pesticides, but like sometimes, you know, adding sorting tables in Bordeaux and reducing yields so that the quality of grape Bordeaux actually started to go up in, in the mid to late 80s, for instance. And so this was, this was, I mean, again, this was me having to figure out how to tie all these pieces together, but it, it was this sense of um, change happening in a France that is not the old France. It's a more diverse place culturally. Uh, it has evolved, it's part of new Europe. Uh, and it, you know, it, it has had to jettison a lot of myths that, to be fair, a lot of Americans and Brits and the Anglo-Saxon world still likes to dabble in. The, you know, when you get to the Provence chapter, it is very much about the myth of Provence. Uh, but you could, you could write that almost anywhere. Is but, that, yeah. Is that the consumer or the audience grasping onto it, like the older drinker collector? Some. You know, for Provence or Bordeaux. Yeah. I think I think there is certainly a generational aspect, um, and <clears throat> but look, like we we've all. I mean, with Provence specifically, it was something that started certainly in the '60s, moving into Alice Waters, Richard Olney, Julia Child, like all of the the American culinary greats who all had this. Uh, this mythic Provence that they traded on moving through Peter Mail and, you know, lavender sachets and everything. So it was this sense of like, there's been, you know, at least a generation's worth of myth making around right. about the Provencal uh, idol that A, just doesn't exist anymore, but B, like, has really contributed specific to wine to like this, you know, this trade in sort of mediocre rosé. Uh, that that doesn't really. I mean, Ross is one of the places where progress is truly hard to um, uh, to 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 locate. Um, I, I had a whole sort of um, uh, analogy at some point in the the in the uh, text to lotus eaters, and I was like, this is you know, I, the moment when you're starting to quote Homer is the moment that you need to stop. Right. Uh, but it was, it was the sense that like, there's, you know, there's no one is addressing reality, which when you see the regions that have progressed the most in, in France, I would say they're the ones that are the most clear eyed about the reality of the 21st century. What are some of them? I mean, be specific with me. I mean, so again, Burgundy, Champagne for sure. Beaujolais. Beaujolais most of the Loire, or much of the Loire, right. certainly the Western Loire. What I expected. Um, Roussillon. Not Down so much south. Languedoc, but Roussillon. Really? The, yeah. I mean, there are very Jura? different stories. Is the Jura up there or not? A... No, the Jura is like off in its own world. Really? Um, the Savoie, to some extent, I think is very contemporaneous in understanding how the 
the 20th century view of French wine didn't really help it. Um, and in a, in a somewhat different way, you could say Bordeaux in that the progressives in Bordeaux have an acute sense of what modernity needs, in part because they're in one of the most, uh, the word that, that uh, Vigneron there used to me was feudal. They're in one of the most feudal wine regions in the world. That's and, a good and, uh, way and to describe the, it. If you look at the way the market for class growth Bordeaux operates, like it's, it is, there is nothing modern about it. Uh, and again, to my point about history, it's, it was something that was really built up as a, as a mercantile, um, the, the literal word is privilege, privilege, uh, the privilege of Bordeaux, that for hundreds of years, even though Bordeaux wines were generally inferior, they had the right to sell their wines for anyone up, up, uh, up river. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, Bordeaux is interesting in this whole thing. Um, so, so to your answer, this, your, your question about like going back. So I went back to Bordeaux three times because I really wanted to dig in and find signs of hope and, and what I felt were opportunities for the region to, uh, to progress. Compared to what you were seeing and what was going on in other regions? Yeah. And? Uh, well, because again, like, you know, even in Champagne, where there is, again, a very sort of strong, established... Mainstream. ...mercantile culture, yeah. yeah. Like, <clears throat> the, the rise of grower champagne and what, what in the book I called vigneron champagne is, is absolutely distinct, and it is where all the energy in Champagne is focused right now. And even the sort of... Even the forward-thinking big houses like Rotor acknowledge that being a vigneron is really where the future of Champagne is. In Bordeaux, you, almost everyone is still living under this, um, this curtain of the classification the, of the Medoc, but also in Saint-Emilion, where, you know, finally with the 2022 classification, uh, Osun and, you know, most of the big uh, top gross in Saint-Emilion uh, opted out of the classification because the classification had gotten so ridiculously irrelevant that it wasn't right. worth it to them to continue, and everyone was suing everyone. <laughs> um, but you, you live in this system in which you're... Um, I mean, it's it's almost if you don't want feudal, I would say it's almost caste like. You you rise to the rank that you are accorded in society, and you will never rise beyond. It is the most undemocratic place that I have ever seen, just in terms of commerce. Uh, and so, you know, the the folks who are legitimately pushing for change in Bordeaux are doing it in a system that truly does not want them right. to ever have a fair shot. Right, right. It's. Um... <clears throat> I don't think it's going to change much for years. Um, let, let me segue into something. We talked about patrimony a little. Um, that I think is a thread that goes through the book that I want to talk to you about. Um, and my listeners are very aware of natural wine. <clears throat> We've wrestled to try to figure out a definition and realize why. You know, Alice Firing's going to tell me one thing and, you know, Jorge Rier is going to tell me another, you know, whatever it is. Um, I feel like Alice would probably tell you that you're, you're, you're on a fool's errand. But, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure. Which, you know, which she would definitely have which a Which is definitely where it. I would land. Um, <laughs> yeah, that whole thing is interesting. It just shows you how all over the place yeah. it is. Um, but what I realize 
with how who you write about, what you write about, how natural wine is such an important part, you know, of this. I don't know if it's part of the timeline or you categorize it as natural wine came, but I, I think a lot of um, what's important to the new wine embraces what natural wine is. Is that fair to say? Farming, you know, the type of thoughtfulness and intervention in the cellar, all of that. I mean, that's kind of what seems important in the book, what stands out and what is, you know, cited over and over. Yeah, and I would say those things are all tremendously important to wine in the postmodern world. Uh, whether you think that that defines natural or not. Is, well, I just realized, because you think of that natural, you know, orange mousy wine and the practice of making wine thoughtfully and naturally, right? right. And then you get into this question of, well, is, is Domaine de la Romani Conti, is it natural wine? Which, it's funny, so before I ever wrote... Biodynamic, Well, before right? I ever wrote New California, I had a whole book proposal, and we're talking about 2009, about natural wine, which, thank goodness I never wrote that book, because uh, <laughs> I would have immediately... Yeah, you wouldn't have been happy. The world's quickest dating book ever, uh, like, you know, obsolete before it came out. But one of the things that I was looking at was why the world's best estates were, quote-unquote, turning natural by the 2009 definition, but it was... Here's DRC, it's all indigenous yeast, there's no additives in the cellar, it's all biodynamic. Like, it's by the, the quote-unquote benchmarks, like even by the charter that there's now a, a natural wine syndicate in France that has actually created a Caille de Charge for natural wine. Uh, which, Did you get a chance to look at it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, not, not wildly surprising. It is very much this mix of farming and... Uh, and winemaking, but then it's things like manual harvesting, which uh, is, you know, is that really a definition of natural, uh, such, such as it is? Uh, and look, I mean, there's, without getting too, too deep into the weeds, like some of the reason that natural is very much where it is right now is that it is ultimately in its origin French as a concept. And the French are very good at Cartesianism. Which they, is they, making they, rules and breaking them? Or? Well, they're, yeah, they're, well it's, it's the making of the rules. The breaking of them they're also good at. But it is, it is this ability to see things in, in axes, you know, and you either are or you aren't. And so, you know, are you natural or are you not natural? Which, again, for something that doesn't even have a, have a definition, like, so... There is this sense of identity wrapped up for a lot of French vineyard in natural wine that um, that became a, a trope in the book when I wasn't really thinking in terms of I'm writing natural or not natural, but like every time I'd go to a quote unquote natural vineyard and visit them, they would say, oh, is the book about natural wine? And I'd say, well, it will be in the book, but I wouldn't say it's about natural wine. What uh, was... Why did they ask that? Were they because hoping they it was a if, book about? No, well, yes, but they also wanted to know if, like, I was one of their people. Okay, you know, it's like, they do, were like do, you, feeling, do, you, yeah. do you know the secret yeah, handshake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I and I knew from the start that like it, I couldn't I couldn't live with that binary because it, a it just doesn't work because there's no real definition. But b like there are there are so many wines that technically would qualify, but that's not their own, that's not their self-identity. Well, I was going to say, I think a, 
I realize when I ask the natural wine thing, to me, it's not about the defining of it, but what the right practice is and how people want to practice. And it brought me to the part on certification because everybody seems to want, you know, that rule book. But a lot of people don't certify that are, you know, uber practitioners of what you and I would believe is, you know, the best way to do it. So it's really how everyone approaches it, right? Or just to some extent, again, it's this, you know, it's this question of how, how, how Cartesian are you? And the Cartesian way to, to go about it is, well, you get an organic certification, you go to Demeter, you get a so dynamic certification. But then, and there's, there's, a, there's a sidebar in the book on whether to certify or not. And there's right. a lot, not a lot, but there's a number of very forward-thinking things. We were saying, you know, I was okay with this idea until it became a, um, until it became so, so prescribed and so, rule-driven, and especially in the case of, uh, of Demeter, like, so, like, essentially so, so commercially driven, where you, you Yeah, know, Demeter you, was thought as the authority, well, and you, now it's you, being questioned, you pay, right? You know, you pay the equivalent of a membership fee. Yeah. And so, I mean, the quote from uh, Pascal Munure is, it would be like paying to be Buddhist or Christian. Right. Like, do you, do, is this your religion or, um, which we could, you know, that takes us down a whole other road, but, um, well, wait, there was a funny thing to that point. I think it was a De Demeter participant where he got a letter and it was like, dear subscriber. What yeah. was it? <laughs> he goes, subscriber. Dear yeah. customer. Yeah. Yeah. Dear customer. It's like, wait, I'm a practitioner. And I, you know. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it, like, you know, like I said, this, this is yet another layer on why natural is so complex. Uh, and so knowing that I had to write a, a chapter on natural wine, uh, it is probably the most impressionistic chapter in the book. Uh, it invokes some complex analogies as to where natural is. Uh, but the, the two-second takeaway of it, uh, without going down the rabbit hole, is, you know, when you accept the precepts of natural in their sort of broad strokes, how inclusive are you willing to be? And are you willing, for instance, I mean, one of the examples in the chapter is Domain Weinbach in Alsace, which biodynamic, one of the pioneers of, of organic and biodynamic farming, long, long history, you know, everything in the cellar is completely traditional and, you know, would be natural by any circumstance. And like now they make an orange wine because everyone in Alsace is starting to make an orange wine. So like, are they part of the cool kids club? Like they're not, you know, they have old labels and they're a very traditional uh, sort of old fashioned label. But like, That's if you, crazy. if you actually follow, if you actually follow the rules, like if you want to follow the, 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 you know, the checklist, like they tick all the boxes, but they don't hang out with the right people, which is again, like this very French thing of like, are you in the right click? And so this thing with natural for me, it came down to like, you know, how much of it was this very specific reactionary kind of neo-Marxist uh, movement came out of, largely out of Paris in the 80s and evolved into to what natural has become and how much is, how much is looking for like minds, how much is really about process and practice. And if it is ultimately about great processes and great practices, then are you willing to let other people into the club? And are you willing well, talk to, to me are, you, are you willing to, to like, are you willing to acknowledge that what would be norm core wines, like wines that present as just 
lines that they can be natural and they don't have to be that, weird that, and funky and all, all the ways that, you know, food magazines like to describe natural wine right now. That's kind of what I meant all, you know, when we started the discussion, to me, it's more about practice and process, not the definition. And I think you and I would agree that there's, things seem obvious that these are the right practices in farming and all that. Um, but isn't that what we want everyone to do when you talk about, you know, bringing people into the club or whatever, that's where it gets dicey, where people define it one way. And well, this is, this is, you know, if you're farming thoughtfully and you're making wine thoughtfully, you're still going to get different outcomes. Sure. But you're also, this is the risk of saying that this is how something should be done, which is okay. If you really, let's say you believe it should all be done organically, there should be no additives in the cellar or whatever. So when people who you don't really share other values with start doing that, then... Like Kendall Jackson natural wine? Sure, but I don't even mean that. I mean, it's just like, you know, like Burgundy Estates that are just doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, not because they like right. want to hang out, right. you know, and like... You know, right. drink, so drink chartreuse at four in the morning. So there's still, you know, a, a lot to be done with that. But it's funny when you talk about that whole defining it and the movement, there was a movement of vignerons and wine bars in Paris that had an influence to the movement. Yeah. You know, then there were guys like Jules Chauvet who kind of elevated the science of it, right? Um was were they both going on at the same time? Yeah, um, I mean, essentially, what we're largely talking about is the, the 1980s. So right, with um, sulfur, carbonic maceration, right, but, but, indigenous yeast, but, yeast. But specifically, so and the, the, there's again, this is the other chapter that sort of tells the story of natural is um, the rise of those wine bars was in the mid 80s in Paris. The wines, to some extent, that they were interested in were the wines being made by this 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 gang of vignerons in Beaujolais, who all sort of became acolytes of this guy Jules Chauvet, who was a wine negotiant and a, and a scientist, uh, who lived in Beaujolais and had had made and sold Beaujolais, and was kind of at the end of his career and toward the end of his life. I think he died in 1987, and they went to visit him sort of right at the turn of the 80s and. Were with an already interest in well, they, they sort of were like they were curious about like could you make wine with less sulfur? Could you do it with no sulfur? How do you you know use indigenous they had yeast? questions? They had questions, and you know he was an eminent wine scientist and and working on that stuff. Yeah, no. The the irony with unsulfured wine is that that had dated back probably another thirty or forty years, um, and even with say carbonic maceration, which is this very specific way of making largely Beaujolais and now all kinds of stuff like you know he had written one of the textbooks about it in 1972 but it was really something that I mean it was something that started informally in the late 19th century but certainly the process was formalized by the late 1930s and so you know this was them sort of reviving a lot of previous thoughts um, and Chauvet was a very thoughtful scientific writer he wrote uh, even in the 60s about what a quote-unquote natural wine was, which was, you know, 
hopefully not that much sulfur, maybe 80 to 80 parts per million, uh, and, and, you know, no yeast if you could avoid adding it. And Pretty know, specific. Well, yes and no, but it's, I mean, it's sort of a pretty basic recipe. Yeah. Um, but it was the thing where, you know, they, they were inspired by him. I don't think he thought he was starting anything. He was just glad that there was, like, some young kids who, who cared, who gave a shit, like, you know, we're, we're going to ask him about some things that had been interesting to him. And then they, of course, sold their wines to these wine bars in Paris. And then eventually, like, they started having salons for unsulfured wine. And it, I mean, this, this was the actual genesis of the natural the wine natural movement, wine movement. Uh, such as, such as we know it now, but it was, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's quote unquote father was, in no way thinking about these things beyond right. a scientific curiosity. Right. And that's the way it comes across. And that's why, you know, reading the chapter in the book, you know, natural wine is, it's not natural wine or the day. It's so wide and open and all of that. Um, let, let's, Let's leave that. Um, I'm curious all this. You don't want a three-hour podcast. I do. <laughs> I do. And this is a topic that I would go with. And when I look at the downloads of the podcast, when you talk about natural wine, it's like, you know, it's like, whoa, okay. But the, too much We'll going come on. back for a natural wine special. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will be sitting with you um, in five years when you revive the new natural wine idea that you pushed aside <laughs> many years ago. Um, everything that's going on in France, you know, what we briefly talked about, you know, what's happened in the last 20, 25 years, is that pretty much what's going on in France because of the culture, the wine culture, or... Are similar things happening in Italy or Spain, or it's fairly unique to? Uh... They're they're starting to, and I think you see certainly Italy and Spain now Greece, Eastern Europe. There is a an absolute boom in I'll call them postmodern wines. They are largely <laughs> natural, uh, but n not 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 necessarily. But they are certainly forward thinking, they have a different set of aesthetics, where I think it is still probably a little bit earlier on the curve for most other countries. Like Italy has a lot of wine regions, but not necessarily... There, there's very few where you not see... Not the history. Well, you, you, there's very few where you see kind of a broad-based push toward a, type, a specific type of change, which is to say, like... Barolo and Barbaresco, like the Lange has gone through these, you know, these very dramatic shifts in uh, and debates over style. <coughs> Excuse me. Pretty much old versus new. Old versus new, which, you know, you ask like Barolo fans now, what do those even mean? And they're like, right. well, nothing means what it used to. So, right. But, you know, there's been this evolution, but it's it would be hard to say there that there's been a distinct push toward one thing or another, whereas in Champagne... It is very clear what the shift has been. That's a good example. It is very clear, even in Burgundy, what the, the transformation of farming and winemaking has been. And I think you could find elements of that in, in Italy. Spain as well. Spain tends to swing more broadly because it's outside of Rioja. It doesn't have tons of established regions, aside from Sherry. And Sherry actually is go undergoing a remarkable transformation um, and... 
speaking of re reviving books, Peter Lean probably needs to come back and revise his yeah. sherry book because the the rise of unfortified uh, wines in uh, in Andalusia and all sorts of stuff there is truly that is actually one of the only places where you see there is an almost unilateral shift to something new. But beyond that, it's I th I, I think it's. I think the only reason for the, to some extent it happened in most, so many parts of France is because of the power of Appalachians. And when Appalachians went bad, so to speak, like right. when, they, when they sort of fell into, you know, the fat Elvis phase of, of, right. of their, their lifespan. <laughs> That's a good way like, to put it. Yeah, they, they needed, they, you know, they, they, they needed to have a very distinct revival. And this is, no, this is by no means saying, like, everything is settled in France and everyone's in lockstep because... Yeah, France. Far from it. But at the same time, it's, I think the cohesion of the regions in France have allowed there to be much clearer story paths. Interesting. Um, I want to finish up with a couple things. I won't let you leave without doing the wine list. You did it, did it the other two times you're on. Um, but we'll move away from the book for a second. Um, I want to talk about Resi, um, which is currently, if it's not the book, what you're doing the rest of the day. Um, I kind of love what you're doing there because, you know, I've sort of been a, a user of Resi. I told you I was an investor. Um, I love the editorial, the fact that you've had this sort of educated active consumer base you know and now you're feeding them terrific stuff and you know if you read the book people know you know how to write and yet they know that before um is is there a similar transformation in dining that you're seeing in wine is there any transformation i mean you've been a student of this um and now at resi you focus on it and you actually write and report on it um, I mean, I see it going more casual, but not less good, <laughs> you know? To... Yeah. So, so the first thing I should say is that, uh, A, we have a remarkable editorial team at Resi, both staff and uh, dozens of contributors. So, Was there that kind of output of editorial stuff before you came in? No, I so I was sort of the I don't the, remember the, it. That's... the second or third person in for editorial. So you know, I'd say editorial ramped up really kind of the beginning of 2020, and and it's really built since then, um, again through a whole team. Um, but editorial was baked into its DNA. The hit list, which is still one of the things I handle these days, uh, you know, was there from the very beginning right. with, with Ben Leventhal. Yeah. Um, in terms of how dining is changing. The, the quick answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, I think the ways in which we talk about it is that great dining is what is operative now, which is not fine dining. Fine dining has a very specific context, tablecloths, service, all of that. Great dining is remarkable chefs cooking food that is challenging and interesting and dynamic. Um, multicultural in in the best way in the sense of like you know not not assigning a hierarchy to european versus non-european cooking and acknowledging that 
the diversity of traditions that you can you can enjoy at, at every level of cooking in New York and London and LA and Miami is is astonishing and, and it's it's this this broad based pushing forward of the culture which doesn't require the old tropes of dining. It you you maybe it's that you have omakase of every form, you know, which could be traditional Japanese, it could be uh, Afro-Cuban, it could be you know, Korean. Nigerian, Korean. I mean, Adamix is Korean. Yeah. Um, Department of Culture is sort of neo-Nigerian, if you right. will. Uh, so it, it's the sense that that you know that that great dining surrounds us today, but it is not playing by the old rules. And and I think our our view of of a mission, if you will, is to capture how how great the options are, how many restaurants there are to love out in the world that don't have to fit into a mold. Is, do we have to worry about things being cyclical? Like this is what's going on now and like 20 years from now. We're my, all going to have finger my bowls. My kids, no, right. My kids are going to yearn for like what they didn't have, but what they heard about. I mean, unlikely. I mean, you know, in... I'm sure that some elements of that will come back, but you know, it's look, is it is it different than the debate about whether work from home is is with us now forever? And you know, I mean, so Resi is part of American Express, and you know, American Express is a relatively traditional conservative financial services company, which you know you don't see a lot of ties around anymore. Our, no, uh, our, our it's not CEO, just Fridays. Yeah, I mean our CEO does his town hall in you know like a you know pullover and jeans, uh, and that, like has actually made you know jokes about it where it's just like you know this is this is the evolution of culture, and I think that I think the the same is is true with dining that you know the old the old rules the sense of you know. Running after stars, if it's your thing, if it's your not thing, fine. But like, there's there's just there's new criteria, there's new new ways of seeing the world, and I think that just reflects the transformation we had. And, and it's not that it wasn't happening already, but God knows the pandemic put it on steroids. Yeah, I, the pandemic changed a lot of things, and I'll tell you one thing: as much as people either their vibe is to be a certain way. Everyone is still chasing stars and Michelin stars and Pete Well stars and people you wouldn't expect get excited about being on the wine spectator grand list or whatever. So, you know, as cooler hipsters you try to be, people are very happy, you know, for that. So there is some tradition um, to all of that. Well, and, and there's also a bit of a tradition of, of, of not playing into tropes, which is say, go back and look at the, the places that Mimi Sheraton gave four stars to. You know, she was all about like giving it to Chinese restaurants and yeah. all sorts of stuff. So it's, you know, this is that like a Jonathan Gold thing too, where kind he. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's just, I think that we are out of a phase of, uh, of formality, of feeling that there needs to be, you know, there needs to be a single playbook to. Yeah, bring it back I, a little bit to wine, I, and, I, and I actually don't see that changing a ton. And this is like, I'm sure that someone will bring back super formal French dining. No, no, but maybe one or two, so. a few yeah. offs, not you yeah. know a trend or a pattern. Um, 
is there inevitably a new wine consumer? I mean, you know, they get younger, the older people are stuck to their old things. I mean, how do you see the current consumer affect? Are they going in and, uh, you know, are they eating out as much? Are they ordering as much wine? Are they not wine drinkers? You know, do they need to read the chapter on uh, natural wine? I mean, who is well, inevitably, wine wine consumers are getting younger just by virtue. Yeah, well, of, that's uh, that was sort of, of a physical lead. reality. Yeah, and, inevitably, you know, it's gonna, relativity dictates that it's so. Just like a lot of the <laughs> Burgundy makers, <laughs> yeah. their dad's dead, yeah. and they're twenty six. Um, but you know, I, when 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 people tend to dive into this, what I will always remind anyone is that when you look at a young consumer now, the they are not drinking as much wine. Some of that is like. White Claw exists, right? Into drink exists. There's there's other things. Some of it is Health, legitimately people are just not drinkers. People are drinking less. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but so if you look at sort of the the run of the mill wines produced anywhere, could be could be kind of could be your you know California table wines, could be French table wines, whatever. Like there's that market is always going to struggle. A because someone can do it cheaper. Always. I mean. The bottom of the French market largely fell out because Spain and Italy undercut it. Uh, but also now, to your point, there's less appetite for drinking wine just to drink wine. When people drink wine, they want to they want to be fascinated by it. They want there's, to enjoy it. They want to know the story. They want to know the story, and to the point, the natural sort of, thing plays well, and, in to a young consumer. Like, they one of the reasons that the aesthetics of quote unquote natural. I think are really appealing is that they are willfully different. You know, orange wine, like skin macerated, whatever it is, <laughs> is it's just, it's very easy to categorize as this is not what my parents drank. And so if you're hoping to meet wine in a place that is a context of your own and have something as, let's say, Gen Z, like younger millennial Gen Z that feels like you can own it and it's not just adopting into tradition i've seen that then you know the not not even the practices but the aesthetics of natural wine are right. appealing right and so like it's, you know at some point like when you you know you listen people start complaining about you know oh cloudy and this and that like look if the wine tastes like crap because it has flaws now now you have to question whether flaws are really flaws but whatever I'll leave that for right. another day that'll right. be podcast number eight on natural wine right but um but you know look if, if if there's true aesthetic issues then that's one thing but if there is aesthetic deviation that's just wine evolving and this is look this is what emile Pinot said uh, ultimately, which is that tradition is an experiment that worked. And so, it's you a know, good, it's a great that, line that there's amphora all over Bordeaux at the class gross now is, you know, is no accident. It's, it's, it's the people who are smart and interested looking for new ways to do what they do. Good way to put it. Um, all right, we got to wrap up, but I want to do the wine list. But before I ask you the questions, do you have anything on your what's next agenda? Are you working on the new Australia or are you thinking about anything? Or it's like, leave me alone. Don't ask me that question. I love that. Every, like, I love that everyone wants me to write about Australia and I want to write about Australia. Um, wait, does mentioning it, mentioning it imply that I want you to write this is, about it? This is true. Maybe you, you know, <laughs> you're hoping that. Um, 
So I, there is actually uh, Jane Lopes uh, and her husband are coming out with a book on Australia, which I, I know hope we'll I do, saw. I hope we'll do really They're well. They're going to come on the show um, and talk about it. I September, I think the yeah, U.S. Yeah, I looked at the I looked at the likely economics of doing the no Australian wine, at least for myself. Oh boy! And concluded you want to talk about as, travel as much as well as much as I would love to go spend like a couple of years in Australia. Um, just for me, it was not going to be practical. Um, I, I, I hope maybe it's their book. Maybe it's a different book. That book. Does so when you did the new wine, yeah. I mean, that was a, I, I dread to use the word simpler than California or French, but it, as far as the project, that was like the project I slipped in, the, in between. The but two. is there a slip in ahead of you or we'll you see. haven't even thought we'll about it? Maybe, okay. maybe. You know, let, let me take a vacation. All right. And, well, and yeah, I'll, I don't want to push you into it. You know, I'll come, you're, I'll come back with my next brilliant you, you're, idea. Right. You're always welcome to come on and talk about it as long as it doesn't suck. Yeah. I will say there's a couple things on my brain right now. I don't know what, if any of them, will come forward. Um, and they are not all about wine. That would be refreshing to maybe deviate from wine. Yeah. The new you know, white claw. You heard it here first. Well, I, when you say not wine, I didn't think you meant like a spike salts or something. I thought maybe, you, meant, you know, whatever. Um, all right. So let's do this quickly. We do the wine list. You've actually done this a couple of times. You know, I'll do some uh, comparison. And we post these on our social media because people love to see what our guests, you know, are drinking and recommending. So same five questions I've asked everybody for over 250 interviews. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What do you, what's in the fridge? What are you curious about? Do the seasonal change things bring one? You know, what's, is it still research for something? It's mercifully not research. Okay. Uh, I will admit I'm So still, what are you drinking? I'm still drinking a lot of French wine. Um, like I, and, I, and, and I'm going back and I'm revisiting some wines that I, certainly tasted, but wanted to spend a little more time with. Give me an example. Uh, so there's a, a really talented, remarkable um, young vigneron named Raphael Guyot. Uh, Spell Guyot. G-U-Y-O-T. Raphael is L-L-E. This is a, okay. a woman, uh, not... Oh, okay. Yeah, Raphael. Um, right. Uh, and she is in the Yon, which is where Chablis is, so very, very northern Burgundy, uh, and has some land that's not particularly classified as anything, but... Uh, also gets some grapes from some of the, the northern Burgundian Appalachians, including Sambri, which is the one Appalachian in Burgundy dedicated to Sauvignon Blanc. And she makes a wine called La Valse from there that's gorgeous. And it's just this completely new, different prism on, uh, you know, on, on, on Burgundy, which is very old and traditional, but also a part of Burgundy that people don't know super well. Is it somewhat available? Yeah, or very? It's oh, good. I bought it at um, Flatiron the other day. That's why, you know, I ask you these things because people get intrigued by that description and want to try them. Um, anything else? Categorically, not specifically, specifically just, not yeah, categorically. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just. It's like I saw you post, you were at a restaurant I never heard of in Brooklyn. Was it last night or two nights ago? Osa. Omagrasa? Omagrasa. Yeah. But, okay, but what I posted so what, there, so the irony... What were you drinking uh, there? The irony of what I was drinking there was um, I was drinking uh, a wine from the Breton family in Bourgogne. They are another of the sort of progenitors of natural wine. And it was, uh, it's a wine called Avis de Vinfort. Uh, it has a sailor on the front. And... That wine has been around for a long time. It's it's one of the one of the. Why did you pick that? Well, so it's it's one of the early examples of 
of a wine that sort of can't make up its mind between being a red and a rosé. But it's Bourgogne. It's Cabernet Franc, so it should have, like, substance, but right. it's made very light. <clears throat> this is a pizza restaurant, so we really wanted, like, a pizza wine. Right, a little body. But also, for me personally, this is going to date me, <laughs> I remember drinking that wine in early 2000s, maybe mid-2000s, at a restaurant called 360 Van Brunt. And that is no surprise in Red Hook on Van Brunt Street. <clears throat> and it was one of the... Right? Yeah. And it was one of the truly early oh, natural that wine was, restaurants. That's where, that's where Jorge... Mis- right, but he worked with a guy... With Ignacio. Igna- right. Who I think is working with him now again? Yeah. So anyway, so it's like, it was, it's this, this strange little bistro that was in Red Hook before anyone went to Red Hook that was one of the true early spots for natural wine in New York. And I would go there and I would drink Evie de Manfort because it was this fascinating, you know, kind of fringy wine, whatever, almost right. 20 years ago. And I saw it on a list and I was like, no one ever puts this on a list anymore. And I love this wine and like, I got to drink it. That's, that's, you know, that's a great way to come across that wine. All right. So like I said, I'll post those. This is the goofiest question of the group favorite wine and food pairing and that is not what you think a great wine and food pairing is or what's classic what do you like and it's obviously something you're not going to eat regularly but i mean some people won't answer this question for me i get into fights i'm just thinking through the options um i mean i really like having manzanilla sherry with korean food and why does that work? There's a is there there's nuttiness a in the manzanilla or a, the nuttiness or the salting? It's not even the nuttiness. Not, it's, yeah, it's the it's the fermentative nature. And uh, Korean foods, yeah, like I, mean, I know at Adamix, he's a big fermenter. Yeah, you know, so that's a good. So nobody's that's ever that's my answered, good. No, but nobody's ever answered it that way, and that makes sense, and it's you know thoughtful. So that's you know that's a good answer to the question. All right, this question you should be able to answer. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And I ask you this, and I just want to disclaim it that whatever you answer is not your favorite or one, two, or three. It's just places if you can think of any that do it well, have a good vibe, have a good wine list, have a good knowledge. You're just happy to go in there. Your eyes light up. You know when you see the wine list. Could be just a pure wine bar. Could be a restaurant. Is anyone? doing that to your attention out of uh professional courtesy i feel like i need to demure okay uh i i have actually written along those lines and been able to name a whole bunch and off the top of my head like ones that come up a lot popina four horsemen uh red hook tavern um also gus's which is the same owners as yeah. popina um, James. clearly chambers uh, i was gonna Pascaline. say you can't leave Pascal. Yeah. so all the, I mean, the you good know, none, none of this is a huge surprise no no yeah. no and those come up more than anywhere else yeah. not by coincidence i mean one we're you know we're and feet. again those we, we yeah, you're gonna bump into somebody and they're gonna say why don't you mention me i'll answer it for you these are just some of the places and we're not looking to list all of them but every one of those places and if you go on resi we occasionally dive into the wine world so uh, yeah oh for sure um <laughs> All right, fourth question. The question is favorite all-time wine. When I initially structured the question, my intention was, what was John Bonet's rarest, most expensive wine he ever drank? 
I could give a crap about that. What the question has evolved to me, and hopefully you can answer it, is what's that wine that has become important to you that's memorable, that could have been a gateway, could have been, could have been you know, transformative? Are there a couple of wines or a wine that through your whole wine life that stick out or no? Yeah, this this really is the question I'm going to demur on, only because if I'm doing my job right, then I find a moment of enlightenment at least once a week or so. So that's a fair answer, and that's not the only time. Somebody, you know, gave me the goofy answer, the last wine I drank. And I'm like, that's a goofy answer. Like that, that's go, a lot of confidence in the last wine. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the person said, that's not goofy at all, because... As serious as I take wine, the last wine I drank was very well thought. You know, it was there because it was a producer or I was somewhere and all of that. Um, I don't disagree with that, you know. And, and you're one of those people, you know, that if... I mean, how many producers are in this book? Uh, a little over 800. Right. And, you know, they all don't make one wine or whatever. All right. Last question. You should be able to help me with this, although it's getting tougher and tougher. I asked my guests to recommend the best wine to me retail, 15, 20, 22 bucks. I always preface it by saying my kids are in their late 20s. They can't show up at a dinner with a supermarket crap wine, but they're not spending 40. Same with a gift. How do you wow at 18, 20, 22, under 25? Can you give me a red, a white? Like I always say Muscadet is a white category. Yeah, get, I'm like, you what, know, what do you think of on like that? Like get, get a good bottle of Muscadet and never go So we, you and I agree on Muscadet yeah. as a white. Um, you know, reds, I suspect there will be some disagreement with me on this. I would honestly encourage anyone at that price to go poke around in Bordeaux. Uh, the, the wine for me that I love to keep buying is Chamber Street specifically, has a producer called Plonquette. Uh, P-L-A-N-Q-U-E-T-T-E. And that's a Bordeaux? It's a Bordeaux, it's from the Bamedoc. So it's not like the Omedoc where all the fancy wine is. It's down by, it's literally down by the river. It's, 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 it's near the mouth of the Gironde where it empties into the sea. So this is this like not traditionally great vineyard land, but uh, they're making a like good three wine. Three hectares, biodynamically farmed, astonishing wine. And how much? I think it was twenty six, twenty three. Jesus, yeah. that's a great find. You know, Yannick Benjamin schlepped me to this. I, it may have been Saint Emilion. It was all these smaller producers that make decent amount of wine. All the wines were cheap. I just didn't get a chance to taste a lot. I didn't know what was good. But are there values in Bordeaux or it, there's it, a it lot is, of stuff there? I mean, there's, sure, it's the, it's the largest fine wine producing region in the world. So, yes. But that lower end. A lot of stuff. But the thing there's is, like, values if, there? You, if you hunt, I mean, so, you know, similar realm, uh, there's uh, uh, the Hubert family, like Hubert, um, and they're in Bly, so they're across the, the river on the right bank, but... Um, the, their main chateau is Pay Bonhomme Le Tour. Uh, you can find it in a fair number of shops, actually. That's a good and, one. Um, you know, they do, they do Amphora, they do Skin Contact, they do all kinds of stuff. They're like the, you know, the, 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 cra the, cra the crazy family of the, of right. the right bank. But um, their, their standard, you know, Chateau Pay Bonhomme Le Tour, like their standard bottling, 
I mean, usually it's the shelf at sixteen or eighteen dollars, wow. and I literally will buy it by the case. Wow! And some that, of it is a Bonet family tradition of buying cheap Bordeaux by the case, but it's also like. But you don't feel uncomfortable serving it, you know, with friends. At I a mean, meal. there's a reason that historically people have loved drinking Bordeaux, like in the same sense that you know now you know you're supposed to love you know Trousseau that barely has any color, but like there's a reason people like Cabernet and Merlot. Yeah. Um, even if they can't show their face. Right. All right, so those are good answers, and like I said, I'm going to post them. Um, I would think people would give a little sway to your recommendations, so like I said, we'll post them. All right, let me do a quick wrap-up. I want to get some info from you about the book, and then we'll say goodbye. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, which is where I'll be posting uh, John's uh, wineless recos. At S. Ben Ruby on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. You can get to either one through the hashtag, The Grape Nation, to find us on both. On Facebook, we're at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post John's wine list on our social media sites. Um, this should be a multi-way answer. What's the best way to purchase the new French wine? You know, the, we love where, people where, to go to small booksellers. Yeah, where, right? wherever you find it is great. Um, small indies, fantastic. I will say right now, um, it may be a little trickier to find them because uh, books that are the price that the new French wine is are easier for them to order for the holidays. Uh, so if you are not finding it at your local indie store, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Wait, so enlighten me usual. on that. They'll yeah. defer buying it now because they want that type of book around for it, the holidays? It's just it, what you don't want is to spend that much on a book that's right. sitting on the shelf for right. six months. So, right. you know, as, as much as clearly I would love everyone to stock it, I understand, you know, this is, we intended for this book to, you know, to have a long life. Right. Um, so small booksellers, we encourage online, of course. Um, and then, you know, I've been following you on social media since you've been on the show. Uh, of late, which covers the topic, you've been posting a lot about the book. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, at J Bonet, B-O-N-N-E. Okay. J, the letter B-O-N-N-E, just so you know. Um, and is there a site for the book or is it a hashtag? I may have seen I mean, the newfrenchwine.com will take you to the relevant. Yeah, area. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, I brought John on the show because I read the book. I've read his other books, and I thought it was terrific, and I wanted to talk about it. And I hope we can sell some books for you, um, and for all the right reasons. Like we said earlier, it's just a wonderful read. It's a resource. It's gorgeous. Um, we didn't talk about the photographer. What's her name? Susanna uh, Ireland. I mean, Amazing. The, the amount of pages in the book, there's a lot of photographs, and they are incredible. Like, I think you talk about going as a routine to Burgundy and sitting on a bench and having a, a sandwich. I saw a picture of a bench overlooked. I said, maybe that's it. You want to know my one knock on the book? No photo captions? Yeah. Why? That was our designer's call. And I, you know, 
I, I went That's with her. Minimalist and, and I, bullshit. And I and I I stick by it. So like I, I knew like I, well, I don't know if it was poem. like David or Michelle Chappelle or something. There was a I said I know that that's them. So here's the but I couldn't make the connection most of the time. Um, is that a thing people say to you? No photo captions. Or? It's not the first. It's time not ever. a negative, and I didn't bring it up at the end to end on a negative. But the photos are so spectacular. You know they're fresh, they're new, they're contemporary, they relate. It's just sometimes you look over and go is that don't Romani kind whatever so that's good all right so thank you to our guest John Bonet thank you to our engineer Armin and everyone at the uh, Heritage Radio Network um, look for John's book the new French wine I'm Sam Ben Ruby and you've been listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network the Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.